The fearsome foursome of Flip Pallet, Chico Fernandez, John Emery, and Norman Duncan forced the early growing pains of saltwater fly fishing. You name it, and they had a hand in on it. Little John, as he was known, died at a young age after putting a stamp on history with his Emery reel. We all know what Flip and Chico did. Their notoriety exploded. But what happened to Norman Duncan? Where did he go? Well, he came up to me during a presentation I was making in Miami in 2018, looked me in the eye, shook my hand and said, I'm Norman Duncan. I gasped. The ghost was before me. Today is Norman's story. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged them both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. All right, press record, and we are rolling. We are rolling. Well, Norman, thank you very much for allowing us to come to your home. Thank you for It's a wonderful, wonderful home. Um, let me back up a little bit. Two years ago, when I was doing a symposium seminar, if you will, a PowerPoint presentation here in Miami, um, a gentleman came up to me, introduced himself as Norman Duncan. <laughs> and I looked at you and I thought, you are the ghost. <laughs> because we've heard so much about Flip and Chico over the years. And I know that you guys were a band of brothers with little John. Right. And then all of a sudden, here you were. And I don't think a lot of people have seen much of you, if I'm not mistaken. That's true. Uh, and I'm so glad that you came out of the woodwork and uh, and said hello and came to hang with us that night. Well, it's not even uh, out of the woodwork. Uh, a friend of mine, Skip Clement, has a has a uh, a uh, online fishing magazine called. Uh, uh, fly light, uh, fly fly life. Uh, he wrote a book about fishermen in the Keys, and in that book, uh, uh, I was there with a photograph of a record permit on fly, and they said, unfortunately, Norman and Little John have passed away. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, so more than <laughs> you know what? That reminds me of a great quote of uh, Mark Twain. He says. The story of my death is extremely exaggerated, exaggerated yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, let's go back in time, if you don't mind. I mean, I called Flip a couple of days ago. I wanted to, right. you know, touch base with Flip about you. And, and he said, if you don't mind me quoting Flip, he said, uh, 
one, Norman never got the credit he deserved, okay? He also said Norman was a wacko, the single <laughs> most focused individual I've ever known. And he goes on to explain when he introduced his wife, Diane, maybe they're just dating at the time to you. He said, Norman, this is my wife, Diane. And I think he made mention that uh, you said to Diane, you want to go see one of my kingfish flies? <laughs> he said, Chico, well. Chico and himself were out chasing women and doing all that kind of stuff. And you were you were just such a passionate insanely driven fisherman. And when I asked Chico just the other day to come up with one word that represented you, he said, originality. <laughs> okay. And, and I think too, you know, and I asked the, them if there was an alpha dog among the four of you. And they said, no, not really. We were all camp come to the table with the same stuff, but the great uh, inventions and um, um, the experiments that were pulled off successfully were driven by your creativity. And they all agreed that with that. Also, not just the creativity, but uh, a place for all of us uh, to get together, which was my Your garage. garage. And okay. that's what Chico said. Your garage was the so focal that's the point. Spot. That's the focal where all point. the innovations came from. That's right. Yes. And uh, uh, I had all the equipment to build boats, rods, and modify reels. And, and we experimented with knots. And we just, it was just a very creative time. And everybody participated. It was wonderful. What what years were those? And and how did you all come together? Well, that was from 61 to about 65. Um, uh, I think I met Little John back in the 50s. I met Chico and Flip, Joe Robinson, a few of them in the late 50s. Uh, and, uh, and then I went away to the military. And when I came back in 61, early 61, I, um, uh, I set up a rod rack machine and in my garage here, and it just was a magnet. <laughs> they all came. I mean, we had sometimes we had, you know, fifteen or twenty people in the garage, and we're all talking and you know creating stuff. It was what great. a time! It was great. It was great, and we were casting out in front. I taught a lot of the fly casters that you probably know, myself and Chico, and caught taught them how to cast out right in front of this house. Out in the street. So your parents bought. Let's go back a little bit too. They bought. They purchased this home in 1955. Correct. If I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. So you grew up here. That's where the garage was. But eventually, you and your family moved into this home. Right. In '81. Yeah. My mother gave us the house. Yeah. And uh, we raised three children here. And uh, that's great. That's a long time. I mean, you look around and you think about. All the years you spent here, walking in and out of these doors, yeah, and a lot of memories in there. <laughs> many, many memories. What? Um, when did you know that you guys were a team of brothers? When back in the day, it's just like you all gravitated towards each other every day. Well, we just not every day. We uh, almost every weekend we go set some plans to go fishing, you know. Right. Uh, early on in 61, 62, it was most often out the Tamiami Trail. We didn't have boats at the time. Uh, we would fish almost every weekend at the right time of year, and particularly in the fall uh, for the popping snook out the Tamiami Trail on the West Coast. And then we would go down the Keys and rent skiffs down uh, one of the places, Summerlin Key, and uh, we rent uh, these... Uh, uh, skiffs. John bought one, 
was, they were Challenger's gifts and they had eight, 18 horsepower motor. We could go out to fish tarpon at loggerhead key or we go back to content keys and fish for permit and bonefish. And, and uh, uh, we, prior to that, back in the 50s, I used to go down to Key West diving. We used to go out camping on the keys and we would go diving and fishing a little bit, but it was not, it was more um, meat fishing type thing. I mean, we used lures, but mm -hmm. uh, there were spinning rods and boat rods and stuff like that. It wasn't light tackle fishing. Norman, I think, we, you know, a lot of people know about Flip and, 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 and Chico and, and a fair amount about you, but the little John story has not been told very well or prolifically. Tell, tell me a little bit about him because he was obviously very important. Yes. Um, uh, he, he, uh, uh, he, I met him in the late fifties. We went fishing together, you know, uh, before I met Chico and, and Flip or about the same time. Uh, I think it was before, it was a few years before, but his father was an important professor of English at the university of Miami. His mother was a librarian there, very intellectual people at house in South Miami. They, it was made out of California redwood. I think she was from California. She never got it out of her heart. <laughs> and uh, it was kind of a very laid back uh, type of existence that he had. Uh, he got into fishing and his room was just piled with fishing stuff. Um, he uh, finally, uh, around 62, he bought one of these Challenger skiffs from uh, from Spec at uh, Summerlin Key, one of the roads we used to rent. And he bought a 20 horsepower Mercury from uh, Al Fluger used. And we took it down there and hooked it up and <clears throat> went out toward Loggerhead Key to go uh, tarpon fishing. And I was running the boat, you know, it was a tiller. We were running along there and all of a sudden, boom, <laughs> the motor jumps off the transom okay? yeah. in about 15 feet of water. <laughs> and what had happened was, a uh, we tightened it on the transom, but this guy, this old guy, he he put uh, non-marine plywood on there, and the plywood just just uh, delaminated. The motor went in roaring. I mean, I caught it at the corner of my eye. It was about you know ten feet high, <laughs> and uh, so we uh, dove down and got the anchor rope and tied it and pulled it back in and pulled back to the <laughs> back boat. to the dock. Yeah, and and he took the motor. Uh, the next, or we took the motor next day up to a, uh, an outfit uh, and they pickled it and fixed it and replaced the electrical and uh, the boat. I yeah. mean, that engine ran for years, but we took the boat when they were fixing the engine right here to my garage. And we put um, we put uh, magnolia spray rails on it. And we built casting decks in the boat. And uh, that was one of the first skiffs, skiffs that uh, the four of us had. Right. Yeah. And, now I know he 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 built the Emory Reel, didn't he? Right, that's and, correct. But wasn't that funded by um, Tom Evans for it, for, for chasing the big fish over in Homosassa? I think it, I think it was. Um, I was I was not as close to John at that particular time. Um, uh, I was working, going to school, whatever you know, and, right. and I wasn't fishing quite as much. Um, uh, but I used to take John over. My father was running the phone company in Freeport, Grand Bahama. I used to take him over there and we'd go fishing and we'd go over Deepwater Cay. We'd drive over to the East End and, and fish for bonefish and, and permit and stuff like that. And and, uh, and we fish 
in the ocean out there. It was very good fishing. And he died of, what, 42 with the melanoma, something like that? That's correct. Uh, <clears throat> uh, my wedding was in uh, February of 81. He came to my wedding and he had a, he always had a, like a deep mole on his cheek. And he said he was going to the doctor because his doctor was concerned about it. And within a short amount of time, they diagnosed it as a melanoma. And he lasted another five years. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Tell me about the red scarf. I've seen old photographs of you with the yeah. red, red bandana. Yeah. Well, um, uh, I, when I was, you know, I started working when I was like 12 or 13 years old, construction in Jacksonville. And, and uh, a lot of the old timers had, had bandanas and they were usually red. And uh, then uh, uh, I was land surveying and, and we would sometimes flag with the red bandanas. You could see it much further when we we're doing, you know, long distance. From far, yeah. Yeah. And, um, and then when I was fishing, I noticed, I started taking more photographs of fishing. I noticed you, you had these blue fish and a blue sky and blue jeans and a blue shirt and a blue boat. And your photograph was just flat blue, you know. I mean, I love the blues, but that just didn't sing to me, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so I started. I was using these red bandanas and and over my uh, over my face to for for the sun protection. And the first one to do this was Little John. He he uh, had a friend in uh, in uh, in the hospital, and they he had to wear a, a surgical mask in there. And this was in the early '60s. And he came out and. He said he brought brought me one. We when we went because he was concerned with his ruddy complexion, so we put the bandanas on to keep because we didn't. If you wear the the sunscreen sunscreen at the time, it like it's greasy and drips on and it gets all over your rods and gets all over the steering wheel and you know. So uh, we were wearing these masks and they worked fine. And then I looked at some of these photographs with a white mask and it's that doesn't do much. Let's try the red bandana, you know. And it just punches those photographs out there beautifully. And, so, now, and so, now it's so apropos with COVID. Yeah. Yeah, yes. right. It comes back full circle. So yes. you, you and Little John were the first to wear a bandana around your face for the sun, you would say? We were the first of the light tackle sport fishermen. Many people have done that for centuries, probably. You know, I right, mean, right. But, you know, so far as light tackle sport fishermen. Gotcha. I'm sure. I mean, yeah, because I always see old photos of Steve Huff with him, and he still wears them. Yes, yes. He doesn't, he's doesn't a, like. He's not a buff guy. He's a handkerchief. The buff doesn't right. fit him. Right. It's just sort of like there's a little dichotomy there. <laughs> yeah. So take me back to fishing the bridges in Miami and the Keys with with Flip and Chico and Little John. I mean, I know you guys used to carry. Um, sanded down monofilament, right, right. to match there, the taper of the fly fly line, and there was a clothesline out here, right here in this backyard and, and uh, we would take the, this like 200 pound test monofilament and we would sand, stretch it between the poles and then sand the, the taper into the, you know, we just made the, um, the shooting head. We would you'd leave tie it, it thick on one end so you'd have a little bit of weight to carry and the back end was your running line. So you'd, you'd sand no, that thin. No, 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 we would tie the running line to the back of the shooting head. The back end of the line, the back end of the line would be just, tapered very slightly to the to the shooting line. But the front end was tapered probably 15, 20 feet down to the leader end. And that gave a better turn. Oh, I got turnover. you. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the opposite of what you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so but what were those what were those days like, those nights like coming to the bridge and 
hearing those tarpon and snook popping underneath the yeah. lights. Yeah, well, our favorite bridge was Channel 2. And uh, uh, at nighttime, those tarpon would get in there. I mean, these crabs would come floating down and these shrimp, you know, and on the outgoing tide in particularly. <clears throat> and uh, and you, you could see these tar big tarpon come up to this little crab going like that. And it'd just go... <laughs> Like that, like a like a little brim, you know, in a in a creek, like a the, trout on a dry fly, like a trout on a dry. They would just they would just, just follow it like that, and it just whoop, slurp. <laughs> so cool. It was it was really cool, and, and you could see them, especially in moonlit nights, very well against the light colored bottom, and, uh, and then you could toss a fly out there and go like that and and hook them and. They run under the bridge and cut your fly line off. <laughs> but I was going to say, how successful the, were you? <laughs> not very. I <laughs> you got a lot of bites. I think Flip may have gotten one to shore, actually, one of the smaller ones. Yeah, one, yeah. maybe, maybe. And out of how, out of how many times? We fished that for for years, but the last time we fished it, uh, it was Flip and I. We um, we were fishing there, and uh, uh, there was a little bit of traffic, and there's like. There wasn't not guardrail. It was a concrete post with concrete railing between the posts. The posts were about 10 feet apart. And um, uh, there was a little curb, which was about, oh, uh, or by the post, the curb was about six inches wide. But with the railing, they're about, about a foot wide. So what you would do is you would, um, <clears throat> you would, you would stand and lean against the railing and, and cast. But when a car or a truck came by, you'd throw your leg over the railing and lean out over the water with, with the leg hooked onto the railing. So, you know, so one night, <laughs> Flip and I were fishing there and here comes this truck, right? And so the, we hear the truck and the truck makes kind of a wah, 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 funny noise like it's weaving or something. So we step over the railing and, hang, you know, hanging with our knee over and this truck starts hitting the posts right right next to us. Bam, 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 like that. Coming at you. Holy shit. And coming at us and then le and going they were down the bridge, it must have hit 50 poles, you know, with its trailer. And uh, we looked at each other and said, that's it. <laughs> no more bridge fishing. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, it was... Uh, Tell me, tell me, uh, what, uh, take me through a day uh, in the early days when you're going down fishing loggerhead. What would you see? What was your day like? What would you put in? What would you see out there? How many boats? And, I, and then I'll tell you what we're seeing today. Um, well, the the go to place was Loggerhead Point, and, um, and which was that? That's the point on Loggerhead. Let's let's not get too detailed into that. Just. <laughs> that's been around for a long time <laughs> and uh, uh, sometimes there would be a guide or somebody else there or come in while you're there but I never saw more in in the 60s I never saw more than one boat uh, besides mine All right. and I think I started fishing there in the f late 50s I'm not sure I, I don't remember but <clears throat> uh, the first guy to fish there regularly uh, out of this boat rental place was uh, was uh, Jim Adams. He was the one that told us about the boat rental place there. You know who Jim, Jim Adams? No, I don't. Oh, you don't know Jim Adams. Ooh. Okay, I'll clue you in. <laughs> he, 
he might be a a, a potential. Uh, Is he still alive? Interviewee. Oh yeah, yeah, he's still alive. He's he's a very very important fisherman and a fisheries biologist. Uh, he was a head fisheries biologist for Pacific Gas and Electric for many many years. Did a lot of the environmental laws we're trying to follow today. Uh, Interesting. He's uh, so he introduced you to Loggerhead. He told you where to go. Told us where to go. Yeah, yeah. But he started fishing there in '51. Wow. <laughs> And uh, he and a woman by the name of Kay Brodney. You've heard of Kay Brodney? No. Mm -mm. Uh, the two of them invented the orange tarpon fly back in 51 or 52. And uh, she, uh, there's a famous story where Jim Adams had caught a, a tarpon on fly about 50 or 60 pounds. He entered in the Metropolitan Tournament and uh, uh, the last day of the tournament, Kay Brodney called him up, says, says, I want to they fish together a lot. Uh, she says, I want to congratulate you on catching that, 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 uh, that tournament tarpon that you caught. Uh, she says, congratulations. I just caught one bigger. <laughs> <laughs> she, uh, she was a very interesting lady. Yeah. So, so what would you see in a day? Uh, out there on Loggerhead Point? Loggerhead Point was very uh, consistent. Um, I used to fish it with Little John, a guy named Steve Chappelle and, and Flip and Chico. And uh, we would rent a boat. Uh, we would, it was a short run out there. Um, we would look and see as on the way out, as we passed Pike He, we would look down to the, to the west and see if anybody was on Loggerhead Bank. And if somebody was there, we'd go out to the point or sometimes we could see the point. If there's somebody at the point, we'd go to the bank. So uh, <clears throat> we'd run out there and, and uh, uh, stake out uh, with a pole. And, and uh, sometimes we would put uh, our cooler up on the back casting deck and stand up on that and, and uh, uh, bounce with little waves. And young, you keep your balance. And, and uh, the tarpon would come along you know, in migratory tarpon in the chain, in the you know, little chains. And sometimes you'd have to try to get a little deeper. Uh, we started tying flies where we moved the, the, uh, we moved the, the dressing back to, uh, at the bend of the hook. So that the shank of the hook was, was more bare or just wrapped a little bit of thread. So that when the, when the, uh, fly, uh, went down through the water column, it would, give an angle like this and it would go deeper quicker and so, it, so that the, was a sink rate you created it would create created a faster sink rate for these flies particularly if they're fish that when they're hugging the bottom and and uh it was uh it was an important uh um, design design Fly design for right. sure and so we would we would uh hook these fish some of these fish would some of the bigger fish some of them we didn't didn't catch they would head out to the gulf stream out to Lou key right and uh there's Good stories stuff. of people getting drug out there for hours <laughs> by, <laughs> by the tackle that we we're using at the time was was not as sophisticated as what we have today. Right. What pound test tippet were you guys using? Twelve back then. Twelve was a twelve class. class, right? Twelve twelve pound tippet was a classic tippet. And you didn't have shock tippet at the time. Oh yeah, we had it, shock tippet. Okay, because yeah. I know that there was a one of the terms. I think it was the Met maybe that was twelve light without a shock tippet. That's correct. That's correct. There was a fly heavy and a fly light. Fly right. heavy, you were allowed a, a wire or a 
monofilament mm. shock tippet and uh, a fly light. You had to tie the knot directly to the 12 pound test, not directly to the fly. Um, and the knot couldn't be too big. Right. So what was your shock back then? 80 pound? 80 pounds, 60, 80, 100. Yeah, a hundred pound. I know yeah. we're fishing That's mostly amazing. forty pound shot yeah. now. Yeah. But what's interesting now, which it might be a little bit different than then, is that most of our flies we're using are number one, not even a one oh a one, a short shank one, right. little, little worm flies. So a lot of our tarpon bites are just sips. Okay. So the fly gets stuck right here. And that's how you can get away with 30 and 40 pound shock because right. the, fly, the hook is not inside the mouth. There's no abrasion. However, uh, back in the day, uh, we didn't have the knots. We didn't have the powerful rods and the reels with good drags. Right. Okay. And we couldn't put a lot of pressure on these fish. So you, these fish would take the fly in, like you say, these, these larger flies, they take the we had four O hooks, typically four O hooks. They take them in and you're fighting this fish sometimes for three or four hours or more. And with it, because you just couldn't, you didn't have the equipment to, to put the muscle to it. Right. I, I'm surprised you guys just didn't straighten the rod more and fish that fish off the handle, you well, know, with a very minimal bend of the rod. Um, well, and let me get back to the tippet. The reason we used 80 and 100 pound tippet was because of these long fights. They would wear through. Wear through, the sure. So, right. and, and now with the better equipment and better techniques, some of the which you developed uh, and Stu App developed down and dirty and this and that, uh, we're able to put much more pressure on the fish and you're using heavier tippets, and, which is probably good for the fish. Right. And um, so, so uh, we... I'll show you. I mean, some of these rods, we're talking about glass rods. Some right. of them are like noodles. Right. So that's what I was thinking at that point. You know, obviously, the more you pull back, the more you have a big bend with no resistance. I was thinking that maybe if you guys were to straighten that rod and, and, and bend it maybe three inches from the handle. Yeah. Now you can fight them off the reel and the, and the, and the handle. Our reels were not so, that sophisticated either. But you hung onto the fly line, though, to create drag. You can, yes. Yeah. yeah. And then they started coming out with reels with rim rim drags. Uh, but uh, the we sometimes use Fluger Metalis, you know. And, wow! And we used um, freshwater reels. Yeah, we used uh, fourteen ninety five. I think it was called. Four, so, yeah, the one one that was popular fourteen ninety five and a half. It was it was wider than the fourteen ninety five. You could get a saltwater line on it. Right. You know. Right. I I always yeah. thought when the tarpon are in dirty water, why didn't why doesn't anyone use wire? I mean. It's not gonna. It's not gonna break. They're not gonna chew through wire. They may chew through eighty. But Plus here, that hunt that hundred pound test and that eighty pound test is such big diameter, right? A lot of people think that that might cause that not not a good hook set because they're biting down on that. Right. The hook is not allowed to to move forward to get set. Right. But with wire, right. the diameter is so thin. Well, let's not forget um, uh, Anderson. He used to fish with us in the Gold Cup. Um, Carl Anderson fished with wire on the ocean. And this is not more than 15 years ago. Braided or single strand? Single strand wire off okay. the fly. And okay. he was catching fish. So here too, it makes, this theory is that, you know, that underbite's not going to pinch the monofilament and, and that wire's right. going to slide the fly forward right. and get stuck better. But, right. you're, but the question is very valid, especially right. 
on the Cape and Florida Bay when the water's dirtier, that right. wire does make a lot of sense. Right. No abrasion right. issues. Right. You can have a kinking issue, but right. uh, that's not common. Right. And uh, uh, we we just sort of felt that um, that the fish couldn't see the monofilament as easily as the sure. wire. Right. You know? Yeah, I get For that. For sure. Yeah. Yeah, that was obvious. And, How important were all these... Uh, the clubs and the Met and all the tournaments that they were holding. Because you were, I think you're still the youngest master angler, aren't you? Something like that, yeah, yeah. How important were those tournaments? I mean, now we have the Invitational Fly tournaments, the Permit tournaments, right. the Bonefish and the, the Three Tarpon tournaments. But I Correct. think back in the day, the Miami area had very big tournaments that were. No, no not, not, there's a Met fishing tournament. That was the big tournament that ran throughout the winter season. Right. Uh, there were fishing clubs that had inter-club tournaments, but there were no really um, light tackle tournaments as uh, we experience in the Keys nowadays. Right. For the past, I think, I, how old is the, uh, how old are the tarpon fly tournaments in the in I, think, I think I think uh, gold cups going, going on 50 some years, 50 yeah, years. going on 62 yeah. I think could, 64 could was the first year they had it so that's yeah, that's that's for, for 60 years yeah yeah that's that's uh yeah that's about when they started but they we don't have the fishery here to support that for light tackle uh there might have been some bonefish tournaments uh, there were a lot of bonefish tournaments in the uh, early 60s uh all the way down to uh Marathon, Isle Morada. Uh, I'm not sure there was any out here. Uh, that's kind of a good research. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but you had a big presence in Homosassa, and Flip told me that you caught a monster tarpon over there, most likely well over 200. I don't think it was over 200. But you didn't want to say anything because you didn't want anybody to know where you caught it. So that's the story right. Goes well. That's right. I read something like if you if you were going to submit it as a record, you were going to lie about the location. Well, we were going <laughs> to we caught it off Pine Island. Now, there's a Pine Island there uh, by Chesawitzki Bay. Right. And there's a Pine Island down down in uh, near uh, Sanibel. Right, right, right. Right. We were going to drive down to San Jose. We caught it to Pine right. Island. <laughs> and I waited to Pine Island. <laughs> tell me tell me about that story and the fish. Who was your guide? Who was uh, pushing you at the time? Uh, Gary McConey. Uh, he he was one of the guys going to school here at the University of Miami in the early sixties. He and Steve Huff and um and uh, Ru Ruhoff, Rick Ruhoff. Right. Um Nat Raglan, was he over there then? I don't remember. Raglan, I think I met in the fishing club. Um, there, of course, Flip was going to school. Chico was going to school. I was going to school. And uh, and we sort of met each other. Oh, another one was, uh, <laughs> I walked into one of my classes one day in, a, uh, a, in, a, in an auditorium class. And I walked down the aisle there. And there's this kid sitting there and he's drawing tailing permit on his. <laughs> and I said, huh, you're, you're, you're a fisherman? He says, yeah. I said, what's your name? Gil Drake. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> so we started fishing together. I, I got a funny story, just briefly. I don't know if it's apropos to, to say here, but I'm going to say it anyway. So later in the years, he was known to cut everybody off in the lower keys. Uh, Gilbert? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, was he known back then to kind of cut people off? 
by chance? No. Not really. You didn't no. have the cutting, but there's so much good fishing. Yeah. Any, anyway, um, Doug Kilpatrick is out there fishing with Fitz Coker. You may okay. know that name. Yeah. He's a longtime fisherman. And anyway, Gil used to fish with his dog. Right. Right? Yeah. So they're out there and they cut uh, Doug Kilpatrick off blatantly. Yeah. And they had this big pitching, pissing mash. And finally, Doug decides to leave. And Fitz Coker yells over to Gil and he goes, hey, Gil. And Gil goes, what's up? And Fitz says, I want to fuck your dog. And that was it. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> yeah. I, Gil and I got along pretty well. Uh, he's had his disagreements with people over the years, but I've, he's always treated me very nice. I taught him how to fly cast. I, I got him, I got him, uh, when you couldn't get a Captain Mac fly reel, I got him a fly reel for right. Mac. Seamaster, yeah. Seamaster. Yeah. And uh <clears throat> and he invited me over to the Bahamas a few times back in the sixties and he had a good pal with I, him. I helped build his dock there and helped his brother on with the with the airstrip there a little bit. And my father was was uh in the uh in Freeport at the time. And so I would go there and visit my parents, then drive down to Gil. over there and stay a week or two with Gil and and we'd we'd work most of the time. I mean, we were fishing was not the main thing we did. We'd work on that island, you know. Yeah, good for you. Well, let's go back to the story of that big fish you caught on Pine Island. Yeah. Um What'd you see? What kind of a day was it? There's not another boat around. <laughs> and uh we put in a bayport down south, and then we would dodge the rocks up uh to around Pine Island or Chazowitzki Point. And uh that day I we'd caught a couple of fish. Uh, further south, and there was a, a daisy chain, um, and I tried to cast to the bigger fish, but I didn't quite didn't quite get the fish I wanted. But this fish came up, I nailed him, and he jumped around a little bit. But the pod, he sort of stayed with the pod, and we started following the fish. And we got it right on top of the fish and the whole pot of tarpon. There was, I mean, this fish had a 44 inch girth. Oh my wow. Okay. It, none of the other fish really had a 44 inch girth. It, it was about the biggest, they were all, that's about the girth. But some of those fish were a foot longer. Some wow. of those fish were a foot longer than that fish. Okay. And uh, uh, it took 45 minutes or so. Uh, I had the right knots and the right rod. I was using a John Kennedy Fisher rod, the same model that, that Tom Evans caught his fish on 40 years later. That no was kidding. The same blank. <laughs> same blank. It's, it's interesting. It's, and so, you, so, you caught, so you caught this fish? Yeah, yes. You caught this fish? Uh, yeah, let me finish the story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we caught the fish, brought, it, brought the fish up. We measured the fish in the water. And it was easy to measure the girth, but the length was a little more difficult. It was struggling a little bit. Then I pulled the fish, Gary and I pulled the fish up over the gunnel on to the front casting deck, took a couple of photographs and uh, put the fish back in the water. And the fish pretty much swam away and joined another school. So was this the, was this the iconic photograph of you with your shirt off yeah. and you holding the fish yeah. in the, in the, in the right. bow of the boat? Correct. It's a Correct. great photograph. Yeah. So, so uh, we followed the fish and we decided uh, well, first of all, we decided we we didn't want to kill 
the, these fish, I mean, these, these beautiful animals, these huge, beautiful animals, why would anybody want to kill them? It's like killing a, 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 a giant female blue marlin. You Especially know? one that you're not, you're not going to eat. Right, right. I mean, some fish, they're big and they're well, beautiful, but you, they're I, edible. I can go into that a little bit. but uh. <laughs> so, so you weren't a record chaser? No. Uh, I, I had entered my permit I caught and fly because uh, that was kind of a, that was in the Met tournament. But you, you weren't over in Homosassa looking for a record. We were over there fishing for tarpon and there were wonderful big tarpon. And Gary, Gary knew the, the people that found that fishery. And so that's how we found out before. His doctor was the guy that uh, Kirk Smith and uh, Harold LeMaster uh, uh, took up, down, up there for the first time they, they discovered it, the first year they discovered it. And Gary was friends with the doc and he was also friends with Harold. And then, you, and then you fished it and you, you went back to Marathon, if I'm not mistaken, and told Huff and- Well, that and was many years later. Dale Perez about <laughs> it. You kept Joe Robinson. For a long time. I, I didn't tell anybody. The only person that told any, anything was Lefty Cray wrote an article right. when he went there in like 1973 or four that was published in the, uh, in the Tampa Tribune, I guess, whatever. And nobody, and some of us were horrified. We heard about it, we were horrified. And, uh, it, you know, people would find out. And nobody in the Keys seemed to read the newspaper. Right. <laughs> nobody knew about so it. So the boats didn't really show up until later. Uh, much later, yeah. Well, and, it was a local newspaper, so they didn't, they didn't get right, it down there in the right. Keys, yeah. But there were other people that knew that the tarpon were there. Um, Lenny Berg, Ray Donisberger, uh, they actually were chartering people like um, the old guy, to, Eustace Lock Locklear, I think. Uh, right. I think. Uh, I think. Uh, Carl Navarre Navarre went up there. He might have a little bit later. Carl was up. I don't know when he was up there, but uh, Lenny Berg went out with um, with uh, with uh, Locklear. And uh, he, he was tried to fly cast, but Locklear was not set up for fly casting, to say the least. <laughs> Chunk and mullet out there. <laughs> right. So, so what was a day like in Homosassa? You're, you're coming out, you have the, everything to yourself. You have Oklahoma flat and what, what was- Pretty much, pretty much. There's nobody else there. No I don't. One. I don't remember. I probably fished, I don't know. I fished it three or four years. I probably, uh, I might've, toward the end, I might've seen a couple of boats, but. They were usually people we knew, like Dan Malzone or somebody like that. Um, there was nobody fishing them. You know, it was the best day. Was uh, we were we we worked our way. We put in a bayport, and we there wasn't much around uh, Pine Pine Island and Oklahoma. And we went up by Chazawitsky Point, and it was, um, uh, was light colored bottom. And we started seeing pods of tarpon. It's flat, calm day, and it's about you know, less than ten feet of water. And uh, Gary and I, I think we got fourteen fish that day. Wow. Um, I guess maybe half of them might have been over hundred pounds. The other half less than hundred pounds. But we just pull from one pod to another. Uh, none of the fish were 150 pounds. They weren't giants, right? But they were just laying in these pods as far as you could see, just lo just lollygagging on the surface. And it was just you just drop the fly and you just take it. Yeah, I remember when I first was over there. I only fished there a couple of times because there were really no fish. I couldn't. 
my game was not, I couldn't elevate my game. I couldn't learn. The learning curve was too flat by the time I got there. It was the late 80s. Yeah. You'd go for four days and have two casts, but anything that you would throw to would bite. Um, when do you remember when you had to actually start to feed the tarpon versus just show them the fly? Because in the early years, obviously, in Loggerhead and Homosassa, you just show them the feather and bump it a couple of times, they were going to eat it. Do you remember a stage where all of a sudden you had to work to get the bite? Uh, yeah, I think that was in the 70s, uh, late 70s. It, it's, it, it, was, it was a little more difficult to get them to bite. Uh, it's like they'd seen the flies before. And, right. And uh, one of the flies that uh, was, I think, the late 60s that came out was uh, the, my cockroach fly. And that was... Uh, uh, that was sort of a game changer, uh, uh, as opposed to they were they were not weren't taking the orange yellow streamers so much anymore. And so uh, I tied this fly up for some other purposes, and and uh, and I gave some to John. I, did you hear the story? No. Uh -uh. Well, uh, you know Joe Robinson. You've heard sure, of him. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I met him in probably fifty five or fifty six at the fishing tackles. His father was a uh, policeman for the city of Miami. And uh, <clears throat> so Joe and little John were out fishing, may it have been at Loggerhead Point. And uh, they were throwing the orange flies and whatever other fly, you know, and fish just had lockjaw. They didn't have anything. And John's, John said, well, I got some flies at Norman Tide down at the bottom of my tackle bots. Here, here, let me tie one on. And Joe looked at it, he says, what is that? So let me, let me try. He throws it in the water by the boat, and it goes like that. And Joe says, "That looks like a damn cockroach. No self-respecting tarpon would ever take that." That's <laughs> how it's named. That's how it's named. He says, "That oh. looks like a damn cockroach." <laughs> no kidding. In the water, <laughs> swimming in the water. Obviously, the fish so, like the cockroaches. So John, John cast it the first tarpon they saw, and the rest was history. <laughs> and that was a very famous fly. Yeah, but it, we kept it quiet for a few years, but. One day I went down to the sea uh, center on Big Pine Key where all the guides went out. And I didn't think anybody knew about the fly. And I go down there and he's, I knew a lot of the guides, you know, and they're, they got their rods rigged in the boat and it's early in the morning and I walk down there and they all have my fly on. I said, where did you get that fly? <laughs> he said, oh, John told us about it. <laughs> I said, damn. You know? <laughs> so, so and he, but, but he said, but he told us that you're the one that Tied it. <laughs> he gave so you the credit. I, he gave me the credit. But everybody's fishing it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so what was your mindset when you were designing that fly? Were you trying to come up with a little shrimp pattern or what was the... No, that's a spinoff on my uh, Everglades minnow that uh, <clears throat> when we were fishing snook out the trail, you have a little gambusi and killifish that uh, in the fall, when the water's falling, they come out of the, the sloughs in the Everglades into the canal and the snooker there popping them. Well, <clears throat> the, one of, most of the flies we used at that time were feather flies with a, with a spun hackle on them, quite similar to the flies, that, shrimp flies that Homer Rhodes tied. But they were, and we'd use some barred hackles and, and, uh, and they were a little bit dark, but we had yellows and different colors that we would use. And, uh, but they, they, they weren't stand out very much and they didn't really have a fish profile. So 
the creative thing that I did, I think it's one of the most important innovations that I that I did was I decided we also use bucktail flies for various things, including out there. I took the bucktail fly and the streamer fly and combined the two so that you have tying the, the feathers at the bend of the hook and tying the, the, the hair. First, I used kip tail and then right away I started using bucktail. You put a couple of shanks of bucktail up the shank of the hook and, and um, you make a very fishy profile. So I'd usually tie <clears throat> uh, maybe six uh, uh, barred rock uh, hackles at the bend and then a few shanks of this of the bucktail getting larger and larger toward the front. And it has just a perfect fish profile. And it also, um, with a little more hair at the bottom, is fairly weedless. And sometimes we would put weed guards, but uh, that was my Everglades minnow. Then when I uh, started fishing uh, offshore fly fishing, the flies at the time were, you know, just a bunch of feathers and, you know, when you put them in the water, they just slip down to nothing. There's no real fish profile there. And uh, so I think the profile is a very, very important right. image to keep in mind when you're fishing for fish that that have that, that, that go for for bait or for mm -hmm. fish. Right. You know, <clears throat> so I started tying the fly only larger on four O's and five O six O hooks with a white bucktail and with uh, white feathers and tinsel inside. And then I, I would started putting a little blue and green and various color across the top. It's a very fishy profile. You put an eye on it and it looks like, you know what it is. Uh, right. And uh, so uh, I fished those and I caught a lot of record kingfish with them and a lot of other fish. Um, I Then this, uh, uh, Cockroach fly is just a large Everglades minnow. But then I got into fishing for tailing uh, mutton snapper on the flats. And they're really, they're much tougher than permit to get them to take a fly. And uh, I presented some flies and I've hooked some uh, on bonefish type flies, but um, uh, I caught one on spinning gear and the stomach was full of toadfish. You know, these little toadfish. Mm -hmm. So I tied a toadfish fly, which is the same fly. <laughs> it's got it's got the barred rock and it's got the got the brown bucktail, you know. But I tied it inverted so that there's more hair on the hook side. Right. And, and uh, uh, the first time I went out and cast that to a tailing mutt snapper, he garbaged it. You know, it's funny. Harry Spear had a, had a toad fly, which eventually evolved into. The tasty toad, the tarpon, right. the tarpon toad, right. and we used to fish bonefish tournaments with this toad fly. Right, and then um, Gary Merriman put a uh, rabbit strip on the back end of it for home assassin. Started catching these big fish. And right, Timmy Hoover, because um, Gary Merriman used to come down and fish the all tackle with Hoover. Showed him the fly, so right. Hoover started catching all these big tarpon with the toad. And then he ran out of rabbit strip, and one day he just said, what the hell, and he put a green piece of marabou on the back okay. end of it. And that's the evolution of the greatest, right. one of the greatest tarpon flies ever, which came from basically the, the, the stomach of that fish you were talking about, well, the toad. Yeah, but my toad was different than it's Harry different. Spears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, it's I a different. Yeah. It's a different 
tie altogether. Different tie, but the old yeah. toad name. The toad name. I just, yeah. you know, I called it my toadfish fly, you know. Right. And Harry, I have never asked Harry why why he called it toadfish fly. I mean, does it? I think he was trying to emulate the toadfish that bonefish were eating. Could very well be. Yeah. I'll have to ask him. But a couple minutes ago, you were mentioning a fly that you designed for offshore fishing. And right. you said, everyone, you know what it is. is. Were you talking about the deceiver? Well, that was eventually known as the deceiver. After eventually known as the deceiver. Yeah. So how'd Lefty get it? That was my question. So you designed it. Yeah. Where was the confusion and where did Lefty take ownership of it? And talk me through that. Uh, well, uh, when Lefty came here to to the to Miami, I guess it's '67 or so or so. Uh, Chico, Little John, and I went over to his house to meet him and this and that. And I showed him this fly. I said, I "said Have you ever seen a fly like this?" He says, "No, I've never seen a fly like that." And he says, "Maybe somebody might have tied something like that before." And I said, "Well, this is a fly that I use for you know saltwater fishing and big big fish in the ocean." <clears throat> and so things went on, and I think it was. Um, 19, so George X. Sands came out with a book, I have the book here, where he, he has photographs of, of these flies that are similar to mine that were tied by Little John and some, some of the guys in the fishing club. I showed them the fly and they were sort of trying to copy, the, doing takeoffs of it. But none of them really understood the, the profile of the fly. The, only, the first guy to really understand the fly, the concept, was Nat Ragland. Right. He he was he used to be a projectionist over on the beach. We go, I'd go over there, and we sit in the booth there, and we tie flies, you know, and uh, uh, and he understood this profile thing and why know? it worked so well and why it worked well. And so then in '72 or something like that, Lefty wrote an article um, in uh, Saltwater Sportsman about a general purpose fly, and I have the article. I'd be glad to sh show it to you. Uh, in which he said that he was going to call this fly the, the deceiver fly, but he also states in there that that uh, I had invented a fly just like it many years before. <laughs> Give you partial credit. So yeah, well, I, I, I don't. Well, I changed it just a little bit. <laughs> I don't think he could have. He, he would have gotten some pushback if he hadn't have said that. Right. Particularly for me. Yeah. And but I I was not confrontational to the guy. He made money off of it. I mean, I've never made a cent off fishing, right. you know. So, so what? What? So let's go to Lefty. What? What did he mean to you? We all we all know what he meant to the world of saltwater fly fishing. He and Joe Brooks. Yeah. What kind of a friendship did you have with him? What was he like back in the day when you were coming through the ranks? He was a little standoffish to me. Um, uh, he, he he got he went fishing with other guys. I, I only took him fishing once for a photo op one mm -hmm. night underneath the bridges here with Chico and I, but um, uh, I never went fishing with him other than that. Um, uh, I, I was up in Pennsylvania after he moved up there and uh, he introduced me to uh, the guys up there um, around Carlisle, um, uh, Vince Marinero and Charlie Fox and all those guys that were some of the innovators for, for terrestrial uh, uh, bugs, uh, bugs uh, yeah. and fishing for trout. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, and he was, he was helpful. He showed me around where the streams were. Um, but then, you know, I, 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 every time I saw him, I said, well, you know, 
you took my fly. He says, oh, no, it's not, it's not exactly the same. The tinsel's on the inside or the tinsel's on the outside or this or that. It's not exactly the same. Nobody understood that fly right. until Nat Raglan really. How do you feel after all these years, there was such great notoriety and books written and fame earned from all these guys that were in your, your world, right? but you possibly were maybe a better innovator, a better fisherman, but then you kind of moved out of the popular, the popular, the timing was a little bit wrong in that you moved on with the family, you got a job elsewhere, and then the, the fly fishing saltwater world blew up. Right. How do you feel about all that? Do you feel like you didn't get the credit? I feel you like I'm a very responsible person. Okay, and how in, many- in, in what way? How many guides have uh, divorced from their, from their wives because uh, because they get up at uh, four o'clock in the morning, they don't come back until nine at night, and they're fishing three hundred some odd days a year. That's no good for a marriage. It's no good for raising children. You know. Right. Yeah, I mean, we can name a lot of these guys. Right. And I didn't want that to happen to me. And I didn't want I didn't want fishing to become jaded to me. Right. I, I didn't go into the business. So the reason I didn't go into the business was because I didn't want I wanted to enjoy it, and I wanted to develop my family and and go on and and do other things. Uh, right. I didn't want it to control my life. I mean, I see these guides. I mean, some of them are living in trailers today. You know, some of these very famous people right. that were, you know, they're- And the just, story has been told time and time again because, you know, the same scenario works out. They live from paycheck to paycheck, right. from fish to exactly. fish. I, I, yeah, I, <clears throat> I had some medical issues and eventually uh, got my engineering degree and I went on and I think I, I think I did pretty well in engineering. Engineers don't make a lot of money, but I got uh, a little uh, government retirement that you know, we live on now. And, uh, you know, and I raised three children, put three children through college. Yeah. You know, you had a busy, a I, busy family that's life. That's responsibility. You yeah. Know? And no, we, we I, brought these kids up wonderfully. Yeah. Yeah. I see this. Uh, tell me the story you're flying about. You sent me this article recently uh, about flying back from the Bahamas. Right. And you look <clears> down and you see these big pieces of, uh, Logs, telephone if poles. you will, <laughs> telephone poles right. floating. You came yeah. back and you called your friend Chico and right. went out fishing. Tell me about that story. I thought it was fascinating. Uh, one of my, um, one of the guys that I met uh, in the 50s working at the tackle store was a fellow by the name of Buddy Hawkins, a real classy guy. He was a World War II pilot, that uh, fighter pilot, trained fighter pilots. And he, he knew a lot of very important people. And he was retired. He started guiding to have something to do. He loved fishing. And uh, he, some of his older clients um, uh, would hire these planes and Buddy would fly the planes over to the Bahamas and down the islands. And and uh, he was getting older at the time. You know, he was in his 60s or something. He had a little heart problems. So uh, he says, well, why don't you get a license? You know, I said, well, you know, he says, well, you know, I'll give you some lessons. I want somebody to co-pilot for me. And so I, you know, I took the plane off a couple of times and landed a couple of times, but it was enough just if he had a heart attack, I could, could have, I could have handled the plane, right? Yeah. And so one time we were coming back, we'd fly up the keys, you know, uh, to come into the zone, right? And um, so one of our favorite, one of my favorite offshore fishing spots was was off the Ocean Reef Club called the Whistle Buoy. And it go, Ooh, you've seen those buoys up north. Right. Yeah. And uh, so we fly over and I see 
I mean, the only time I ever saw anything like that was after Hurricane Andrew down, down in South Dade, the telephone poles in five, six foot lengths laying around that got just ripped apart by the hurricane. You know, I mean, these, these barracudas were logs. I mean, they were telephone logs. So uh, uh, I, I went, uh, I called Chico and, and we went out <clears> to <throat> Homestead Bayfront Park. I, I, uh, I, uh, we caught some barjacks about this big and uh, we went up, upstream of the buoy. The, these logs were still there and I take the, my boat rod and I put a small hook on one of these, one of these barjacks and hook them in the back. And uh, <clears throat> I take the barjack and throw it out close to the school of, of barracudas and they, they see this thing and they start after it and I reel it into the boat. And there's a technique that we use for teasing fish. Fleur was one of the first people to do this with amberjack. I don't know you ever, have you ever teased fish next to the boat with mm -hmm. live oats? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and people had done, had done it with amberjack, but not, not many people had done it with barracudas. So I was doing it with barracudas for some time. And so uh, I'm swishing this thing back and forth. The barracudas would come up and we had about, you know, eight or 10 of these big boys there. And, and right when they come up to grab it, you pull the, and you get a, if you can pull it just right when the fish comes up to the tail and he, and he gets his teeth on the tail and a little bit of blood comes just, out. Just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit of blood. Yeah. And that just gets them all. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, there was one monster. And so Chico had the one of my flies on there in a big rod. And uh, I said, hit him, Chico. And he put, throws the fly down in front of this fish. The fish grabs it, he hooks the fly, and he goes, fish goes under the boat. So Chico clears the line around the bow of the boat. I'm with the boat rod. I'm putting the, the, uh, the jack back in the live bait well. And all of a sudden, something hits me in the, in the butt. And, and I'm knocked over on the gunnel and I'm almost fell in the water. I was seeing stars. It hit so hard. And I sort of realized, that I guess the fish hit me, you know? And, and so uh, Chico, all he knows is the fish is running toward the buoy. And uh, he didn't, his back was turned when, he, when I got hit. So he clears the line around and uh, he says, let's get after the fish, he's going to the buoy. And I said, Chico, I'm hit. He says, let's get after the fish, he's gonna <laughs> cut me off. Hurry. I said, Chico, I'm hit. He said, what do you mean you're hit? You know? I said, I'm hit. I'm hit. The barracuda hit me. The barracuda hit you. We, we, we gotta get out. He says, I reach my hand back and I come back with blood, you know? And I said, I'm bleeding. Barracuda hit me. Oh my God. And he lifts up my shirt. He looks at the cut, you know, he says, uh, it's not, not, not real deep. It, it's bleeding a lot. But let's get after the fish. <laughs> <laughs> you can bleed later. <laughs> so I cut him off on the buoy, and we went. There was a we saw a doctor friend out in the distance, and and uh, we we went over there, Doctor Elliot Fox, and he looked at. It, he says, "Hey, you should probably go to the emergency room." <laughs> get a few stitches. Yeah, you were a big uh, kingfish guy too, didn't you? Innovate, you know, kingfish yeah. flies and teasing well, them. That's up. the same fly. Um, we chummed him up. And uh, uh, I had caught uh, off of Isla Mirada, I'd caught a couple of kingfish. I got a 17 pounder on fly. That's when the high D fl uh, uh, sinking fly lines came out uh, by air cell. And <clears throat> so I'd been fishing down at Key West. I was down there one time, there was this 
kind of a friendly boat captain by the name of Ted Smiths. He had a charter boat there. I said, hey, Ted, you know, I'm looking to, you know, go out to some fishing spot, maybe, you know, catch some kingfish and whatever. I said, do you know any places? He said, yeah, you go out to Smith Shoals and you get some of the chum from the shrimp boats and you anchor up and there's big kingfish. They come up there every winter, you know, and you just chum them up and you could, you know, catch a boatload. So uh, uh, I went out there, but we were, we went on a, um, a fishing club outing and, <clears throat> and there were no shrimp boats. So I just had my fly rod and I just blind cast. I was blind casting for hours. Okay, and everybody else was using jigs and some of them caught some big kingfish, you know, and and uh, uh, so all of a sudden, bingo, bam, 25 and a half pounder. That was the first kingfish ever caught in fly over 20 pounds. And uh, that was a record. And then um, and then the next year I got a 30 and a half pounder chumming. You could especially on a calm day. It was beautiful. You would take uh, some six packs of beer and we'd give it to the shrimp boat guy and they'd shovel. I had a big, I had a box in my boat as big as this with ice and they'd shovel all this cull from the shrimp boats, manna shrimp and little fish and all this stuff. And we'd sit there all day and just keep feeding this out. And these big purple logs would come up behind. Sometimes we get it invaded by sharks or cobia. Cobia mm -hmm. would come up. But when the kingfish were there and I mean, just purple and they, and you'd throw dribble out a little chum and you see them go back like that and just take it like that. But they wouldn't take the fly very well. And I developed a technique of stripping. They like the fast. Faster retreat. Yeah. And uh, uh, I developed this method of stripping that uh, uh, was not putting the rod between my legs or real. It's just going hand. like that. It's it's another, it's like a reverse double haul uh, <clears throat> to, to get high line speed. And um, uh, so I'd caught I had caught a 35 pounder at the, at the time. Uh, and the next year I went out with, uh, with, uh, Gary McConey and, uh, Dr. Berg, uh, Lenny Berg. And, and it was kind of a, it was in the winter, like in January and it was a nice calm day, but there was a cold front approaching and we knew it, but we went out there and Gary, uh, had these big cast nets and he cast net a bunch of live, live baits uh, out at the end of the college channel. And we went out there and we started chumming and the weather got a little rougher and they, I had three or four rods rigged up and they were casting with these sinking fly lines and stripping. And I was telling them strip this way. And they were casting and casting and they cast for several hours. And you could see this roll cloud coming, you know? So I said, <laughs> I said, <laughs> I said, you're not doing it quite right. <laughs> I said, let me show you. I can't, one cast, 35 pound kingfish. Wow. <laughs> they, they just couldn't get the gist of it, you know? But it, uh, a reverse double haul, you were saying. Yeah. What does that mean? I mean, how would you do that? Well, you get some, when you pull back, you get some line line speed. Right. And then you use that line speed with a rod to come down and and get and keep it going so you're not stopping. Oh, so you're kind of like roll casting back in and keeping it. No, it's not roll casting. It's 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 like uh, you're stripping in all the time. Oh, so you're you're, I mean, you're, you're stripping oh, really really fast. Right, with the left but hand. But when you come also, back, you, you when you're when you come back, you're stripping like that, and you go like that. Right, you're, yeah, you get yeah. more forward. Yeah. Yes, I understand what you're okay. saying now. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a tricky thing to do. Yeah, right, it, it takes some concentration. So, so to, if you don't mind, talk about the the twenty turn 
loop or 20 turn knot. Okay. Is that different than the, than the Bimini twist or is no, that? No, it's exactly the same. Exactly the same. Yeah. So that was your name. That's what you called it before. Well, Bimini. I called it 20 times around knot because some people say, well, how many turns? How many turns? Right. You know? Right. And uh, so how did that come, come, come to be? Well, I, I have some research on it. Uh, my research is a little disjointed. I can't trace. The first mention is in New England in 1951. And they uh, called it a Bimini twist. No, at the they time. called it a hundred percenter. Hundred percenter. It was yeah. kind of like the same thing, though, right? Yeah, tied the same way. No, it's tied directly to the lure. It's sort of hand wrapped, and okay. it, and they sort of pull it down. You know, it moves. So like a like an improved clinch knot of it's, some kind. All it is is an improved clinch knot with more turns. Right. That's all it is. Okay. So that's that's not nowhere close to the Bimini twist. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah, the Bimini twist is a hand wrapped uh, multi turn. Uh, clinch knot. Yeah, but then you're wrapping back down on itself. It's the same thing. When the clinch knot, when the clinch knot cinched down, you have spirals inside, and then you have the spirals inside, and then the spirals on top. Then the, then the coil uh, barrel roll on top. Right, but then then you half hitch it, and you can you can totally snug it tight, and you're connecting two lines. Yeah, but well, uh, let me let me continue. The <clears throat> the um, there was that knot, and I'll show you the illustrations. Um, then um, the next documentation I, I found, uh, which I had seen, was a Metropolitan Tournament here in Miami had a had a um, had a little uh, booklet of uh, uh, how to rig fi- uh, the Herald Fishing Guide is what it was called, how to rig and all that. In 1955, they illustrated. Uh, this knot and said it was used for heavy trolling to make a double line. You know how IGFA right. uses double line. They used to half hitch double line or, or splice it or, or uh, seize it to make the double line. But this knot was used in, in lieu of that. And I, my speculation is that the knot went from New England, these bass fishermen in the lakes, to, to uh, uh, Maritimes and that some tuna fishermen got hold of it and used that using a lot up there for the tuna fishing. And then came the tuna tournament comes down to Bimini. And that's where that got its name Bimini Twist uh, from uh, the tuna fishermen. To offshore make, guys. Well, offshore guys, yeah. yeah. And then um, uh, some of the guys at Pier 5 in the, in the, in around 1955, 56, the reason that not appeared in the, Herald Fishing Guide was because these guys, these innovative guys at at uh, at, um, at Pier Five, uh, the charter boat fishermen started using it. They had learned it in Bimini. They brought it over from Bimini, started using. It. And one of the youngest captains there was a guy named Gary Simmons, Captain Gary Simmons. And I met him in like uh, 57, 56, 57. And he got some rod. I repaired some rods for him. I took him down there to Pier Five. I said, "Well, I'm looking for a knot." that's stronger than the clinch knot. And he says, well, uh, let me show you what we build, you know, we make, but it's just, it takes two people to do it. Sometimes they use a drill and they two people to wrap this thing, you know, they wrap it by hand. And uh, I said, and I said, it won't break. He says, won't break. I said, that's what I want. So I went back and I think I might've slept on it. And next morning I made a loop, put it over my knee and pushed my finger down. And that's it. that was it. And then I started using that and showing it to people. Um, uh, primarily for bone fishing and flats fishing and light tackle light stuff. Tackle stuff. So, double line. So you're not saying you in, in, you invented it. You're, you're just saying you brought it into the whole light tackle fly fishing world. I 
uh, a lot of these knots have existed for centuries. Sure. Okay. What I invented is a methodology of tying it for light tackle sport fishing, right. where one person could tie it. Okay. It's really, it's just You refined how to tie it. I, I refined it, yeah. It made it so that just the average Joe can tie it. Right. But when I first started sh showing this to people, people, I'd, people would say, I'd say, well, I have a knot that doesn't break. It's people that weren't knowledgeable, they would say, oh yeah, well, that's interesting, you know. People that were knowledgeable fishermen would say, you're crazy. <laughs> right, because they <laughs> you know it was impossible. Yeah, it's impossible. And I say, yeah, here, I'll show you. And I, and I, they say, oh, that looks like a pain in the ass, you know. I go like that, throw it, here, pull it, you know, pull it. And, and everything else would break, <laughs> no, but the knot. Yeah, and they pull it, and then they get a puzzled look on their face, and they say, hmm. Uh, show me how to do that again. <laughs> yeah, right. But how ingenious is the Huffenagel? Um, where you can combine two pound test to a hundred pound test. The, the Stu, I mean, uh, Steve Huff's not. Yeah. And that's quite ingenious. I mean, yes. all the world records caught over the last 30 years have probably used that knot for light tackle. I don't think it's as important a knot as the, as the uh, 20 times around knot or Bimini twist. I think the Bimini twist. But the Bimini twist is, is a combination of the Huffenagel. Because they use the Bimini twist to get the double line through the figure eight, seat this figure eight, and then they have yeah. Well, the figure eight really turns into a uh, two-turn Duncan loop. Right. Okay. It's no, I get thing. that. But the combination of those two, whatever, you, however you want to call yeah. it. Yeah. But to be able to invent or design that combination of two knots, really, really helped right. catching big fish on light tackle. That's right. Uh, I didn't. I, I didn't use that knot very much at all. Uh, I use the Albright. Right. And I use what I call a, an approved Albright. And what's improved about it is that um, is when you go through at the end, you would go through the loop from the, lead, the leader loop right. at the top of the knot. I go through twice. Okay. Because if you don't go through twice and you cut it off short with it going through the guides a lot, that, that little tag end can come out. Okay, right. if it's not properly cinched and you know, yeah. So if so, you wrap it through that last little twice, twice, okay. and then clip it. Seat it, and then, then I clip, clip it. it close. Right. Okay. After you seat it, after after I seat it, correct. Yep. You can also go through once, and then you can do the uh, uh, sort of reverse tie off that you do at the bottom of the at the at the do at the bottom of the. Um, Bimini twist. Bimini twist. That's almost, you, if you overwrap that, you, it's a risotto knot. If you back I, wrap it. I, yeah, I don't know what the name of it. Well, yeah, if you just take that that tag in, wrap it back yeah. through the loop, and you can do it three times. Three or four then, times, yeah. And then send it tight. But it, if you back it, wrap like the offshore guys, yeah. you know, so the loops are on top of themselves, and then they then the, the tag comes from underneath. Right. That's called a risotto yeah. knot. Like, there's a you lot know, of it's names. all terminology and how yeah. you seat yeah, stuff yeah. for sure. Yeah. But uh, what's your greatest invention? What are you most proud of? I think making the twenty times around knot, uh, making making the twenty times around knot available for any fisherman to tie. I think it's the most important knot in the latter half of the twentieth century for for uh, sport fishing. It's it came around because of um, because of uh, uh, monofilament primarily, slippery monofilament. This, here's something that you tie; it won't slip. If a knot slips, it potentially will break because of the heat. Yeah, the 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 uh, friction it disrupts the mo molecules, the heat right. and friction, right. friction, heat, and mechanically. 
Right. So, so uh, uh, I think that's one of my most important uh, knots. Now, the Duncan Loop knot, um, I think, is an important knot, uh, but it's um, uh, it has a wide applications, but it's not a strong knot. Right. You know, it's just a handy knot. It's a really easy knot to tie. It's very handy and it has a lot of a lot of uses. So how did did you work on these knots with your other buddies in there or is that what you were doing in your spare time? Yeah, the guy when I invented the uh, Duncan Loop knot, uh, the guy that was here was a guy named Angelo Durani. He was a pretty well-known uh, bill fisherman. Um, he married uh, Medium John's sister and uh uh, he was a real avid bill fisherman. He, he was a um, school teacher and he also guided a you know, fair, fair amount. He would hire out as a captain. You know? right. And uh, he was here and I showed him the knot and, and he says, oh, that's pretty interesting. <laughs> so, How much fishing do you do now? Uh, maybe one, when I'm in Miami, maybe uh, once every two weeks or so. You still enjoy it? Oh, I love it. Yeah. What are, you, what are you catching now? What am I catching yeah. now? What are you chasing out there? Well, now? lately I've been getting uh, redfish tailing in the flats out of Flamingo. Right. Uh, we, I've been fishing with my friend John. My wife and I, we go out into the bay fishing. We catch snapper sometime. Uh, uh, the mutton snapper fishing in the bay is really good. Uh, but I've tried a few times to get them on fly. And it's it's rather difficult. Uh, we right. chum them up usually down in <clears throat> down in the ragged keys, and uh, uh, we got I mean we got some eight nine ten pounders. You know they're wonderful eating. Yeah. So, so uh, life is still good. Life is still good. Yeah. Good for I, you. I can't get up on the on the polling platform as well. Right. I can get up. I have a hard time getting down. But yeah. I, I had my back fused about four years ago. That sure helped yeah. that. Yeah. So what did you think of my presentation when you met me a couple of years ago? I thought it was an excellent presentation. You, you uh, Very professional, very, uh, very smooth, uh, covered covered the basis very well, and uh, I, everybody was enthralled. Well, you know what's kind of interesting is that there is a methodology to this madness. And if you can put the elements together, which I was doing that night with right. the PowerPoint, there are five elements to successful tarpon fishing. You know, reading the fish, casting the fly, feeding the animal, hooking right. the animal, fighting the animal. And there's a, the correct way to do each of those five. And that's what I was trying to right. present and showing them how to, how to fight big fish using that pulley system. But I was afraid that I was actually nervous that you were there watching. No. Well, <laughs> critiquing <you> know, everything. <laughs> yeah. I consider myself kind of a scientist and physics and, and, and uh, math are my forte. Uh, uh, I'm not a salesman. Uh, I'm an engineer. Um, and uh, I understand how you broke this thing down technically. And I want fishing to be more emotional. You know, I use old old tackle. I want it to be, I want sort of like be emotional type thing where, you know, you, you can feel the bamboo rod and uh, under the corks. You, and the old Seamaster S handle. Yeah. You can, well, I was the one that argued with Captain Mack to, to make a direct drive reel. I, it took me five years to get him to do it, but uh, uh, he finally. But you know, here too, it's, it's amazing that Billy Pate, the biggest name in tarpon fly right. fishing, 
inspired Ted Jurassic to build him an anti-reverse flywheel. You're going back to dinosauric times. I, I can't if you don't have control of that fish with a direct drive reel, you don't have control of that fish well, and or two hanging onto the fly line. Yeah. Well, that's why I used well, to fight fish for nine, ten hours, right? Right, right. Well, uh, but really, in my mind, the reason that uh, direct drive reels were developed here was not for tarpon. It was for amberjack. You catch these big amberjack. Right. I mean, you know, some of them are 90 pounds. But particularly on the outside reef and the fish goes offshore and goes down, you know, 150, 200 feet. And you're, and you're, you can't, I can't lift. tell you how many uh, spinning reel spools have exploded trying to get big amberjack off out of deep water. Okay. And the, the fly reels, you get a big amberjack like that and you, you got a, you got a uh, anti-reverse reel. You pull up like that. And you reel down. You can't collect anything. There's nothing. You yeah, don't get right. any. You, don't, you can't. It's just slips. Right. Okay. Right. So we wanted, we wanted to be able to winch it, you know. For sure. And go down and winch it like that. And then, you know. Lift. Lift and then winch it again, you know. Right. And uh, you can't do that with a anti-reverse reel. It's just impossible. Those big amberjack, they're just, they're relentless. And the big tarpon are too, but uh, uh, we didn't, we didn't really think. We knew that they would help tarpon fishing, but it wasn't as imperative as, as, imperative as, a, as, as, as a big amberjack. amberjack. Yeah. Yeah. And cobia and stuff like that. Right. Well, it's been a great visit. Yeah. I so I so appreciate your time and you coming to that presentation I made and you know, being able to talk to you about John little John yeah. and Flip and Chico and put the uh, the band of brothers back together. And I think that if you take a look at the early stages of saltwater fly fishing, and if there were a, such a thing as a, a Mount Rushmore, you guys are contenders, <laughs> right? I mean, because you guys innovated a lot of stuff that had not been innovated yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, congratulations. Thank you very much. And thank you for joining yes, us. Yes, sir. Really appreciate it, Norman. You're doing good work. Thank I you. Keep, keep at it. It's wonderful. You're you're doing a wonderful service to community of sport fishermen. Well, it's his brainchild in that we want to go around and collect all the stories of all these icons and right. all the famers because we feel that they're going to go away. Absolutely. When people pass, the stories pass. Yeah. And thank you to Nikki. Your yeah. story is not going to pass. Yeah. Well, it never would have anyway. It's a but. team effort, but you know, a lot of the stories are documented, but a lot aren't. Right. And that was our goal to, you know, we did Al this morning. And right. We interviewed you this afternoon, and I mean, we're having fun doing it, and we're getting some great stories. So thank you, Norman. I hate I hate it when these stories die. I just yeah. it just breaks so my heart. I mean, family stories too. Right. There's so many stories in this world that are deserve to be preserved for future generations. You know. Well, thank you for allowing us to come into your world. Thank you. Thanks, right. Norman. Yes, sir. We're all prideful over the things we've contributed to, and I'm so glad Norman allowed us to get a closer look into his world and the legacy he's leaving behind. Thank you, pal. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a huge favor and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.